Hello and welcome to the Pink Bike Podcast. My name's Henry and this week again I'm joined by the dream team of Dario, Mike and Alicia. A lot of things being gone in mountain biking. We have the field test out which I think we're going to touch on shortly. Obviously we haven't reviewed the bike that you particularly wanted but we've done our best to review all the ones that you have no interest in whatsoever. Um, Alicia do you want to hit us up with the news? Sure, yeah. Um, well, I can try at least. This does feel like the first time in a while that the news isn't all about World Cup racing, which, yeah, just change of pace. We did still see a big event. Rampage happened last week and Cam Zink won actually for the second time almost exactly a decade after his first win. Um, just wild. And then followed by Tom Van Steenbergen and Carson Storch. For the other awards, the Magaza Spirit Award, Best Trick, and People's Choice all went to Bienvenido. So obviously he's throwing down and made his mark, and we're all looking forward to seeing him there again next year. And then Kyle Strait took the Toughness Award. The Best Trick went to Slopestyle Femnom, Emil Johansson. And then the Digger Award went to Reed Boggs' crew of Caleb Holanco and Alex Mandel. Henry, did you have a favorite moment? Or actually, I guess, did you watch Rampage? And do you have a highlight? I didn't watch Rampage. I um, I think it's really cool. Well, do I think it's cool? Yeah, I think it's like kind of bear baitingy. <laughs> I don't really like that aspect. I think the things that I watched the highlights. I thought uh, Brendan Fairclough stuff. I think is amazing, and it, I think it's just so so cool. But if it was more of that, I'd be more interested. But when it's a choice between riding my bike in a gap and the never-ending rain and squamish, compared to watching people do flippy spins in the desert, I know what I'm going to choose every day of the week. But that stuff that Brendan was doing, I thought was fucking sick. It was gnarly and raw. Yeah, I mean, amazing. All of them, amazing. I mean, they're obviously incredible athletes. It's mainly the bear betting aspect that I wouldn't watch it live for. I don't want to see someone die. Mm. Um, I, I don't yeah. Feel there were some pretty gnarly yeah. crashes. I really don't want to see someone die. There were some. Yeah. Yeah. Do we know what how uh, Simon Gojek's doing? Because that's the one. Uh, dislocated bad, bad wrist, crash. I think. Okay. Yeah, I think just the wrist. I was actually really, really nervous watching him. That was sort of new for me, I think just because I'm now recovering from a more serious injury than I've had before and just knowing kind of what those guys put on the line and knowing that like at any moment, any time, things could turn out just like they did for me or way worse for any of them was just like sort of a very strange emotional place to be for that day. Um, But I bet I think, yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. That's how I'll describe it. The only bit that I saw live was I was just went through the local bike shop and they had on it. Is it, I can't, it's Clement Cordella. How do you, I don't know how to pronounce Clemens his name. Clement Cordella. Oh yeah. Yeah. And um, he had that crash where he did that massive huck and he overshot it. And I, how many yeah. times has something like that happened where you've got your, like your chest on your stem and rode mm-hmm. out for one second before crashing. And if he'd done that, he would have just plopped just off that canyon, canyon and just yeah. Yeah. into the canyon. Like in and a way, it's, like, oh, it's no. great that he just blew his hands and yeah. went oh, down. Oh, God, yeah. That's yeah. wild. I mean, but, I mean, how many times do you see that in World Cup racing? People, like, stay on the bike for a bit too long, or they right. get their... Even if they blow their hands off, they end up with their, like, shoulders on the bars. I mean... Right, right. I just... I don't know. I want everyone to be safe and everyone to be happy. Yeah. And I'm not necessarily sure a competitive element of who can do the gnarliest thing is... Maybe I'm an old person it's, with no bike. No, 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 it's <laughs> fair. Yeah. I, I will say, yeah. though, like, I'm of the same disposition where you're, like kind of wincing watching the whole thing but it was i think because it was so loose cam zinc's backflip was like one of the craziest things i've seen mm-hmm. like i yelled in my living room when it happened <laughs> it's just <laughs> it, insane it's to so see. big yeah from the, yeah. Some of the, the side scale angles, like, is yeah. ridiculous 
Yeah, yeah and then amazing. we also saw G. Atherton crash too, and that's yeah, pretty yeah. scary. He described his injuries as not too bad, but they did include multiple vertebrae and skull fractures, so also not too good, I would say. <laughs> that counts um, as bad. Too, no, no, gee, yeah. I don't care who you are; those are bad injuries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> his the video of his crash from like the top of the drop looked like he just jumped off a building into some dirt. Like it, yeah. it didn't. It's pretty ridiculous. It just didn't make sense. I don't know. Yeah. 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 I think the cool thing with it, I mean, there's all the gnarly crashes and stuff, but then one of the neat things is how there's just how high the level is these days. Like even yeah. like Talos Turk, young mm-hmm. kid, throwing backflip one foot cans off giant drops and making it look clean. Yeah. Like there are the riders that are making it look mm-hmm. not easy, but they're making it look a lot easier than it would have been even, you know, five years ago or so. Actually, Talos was a big highlight for me. Just seeing the Bellingham kid go throw down at his first mm-hmm. rampage and get fifth is like pretty cool. So cool. Yeah. I think there was like a poetic cruelty to the year that um, formation got cancelled and the year there was this real kind of earnest and movement to get women in Rampage and, you know, really dial up. It then turned out to be one of the gnarliest Rampages maybe ever. And it Mm -hmm. felt like a very, a very like, like I said, quite a stark and cool, cool comparison, you know, because it wasn't like the other years where obviously it's been super gnarly, but maybe it's been a bit more slope style. And this year, it felt real. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, it was just like, free, send like, it. Like, send mm-hmm. it every, Yeah. I was thinking yeah. about it. Like, the judges seemed to dock, like, 15 points for every person who went riders left onto the more, like, slope-style-y stuff. But even there, like, the drop-in is, like, a huge, like, scree line into a catch. And then a 50-foot step up. It's just, like, like the scale yeah. and even, like, the it's little ridiculous. setup features are so hard to comprehend. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm so glad we didn't see anyone die. Me too. Yes, that is a good thing. I guess in other news, um, the non-event news this week is that Yeti started selling directly to consumers, which I think shows a pretty big shift in how the bike industry is operating and kind of how a lot of industries are operating kind of after COVID and making it a lot easier to buy just about anything online. So I'm just curious to see what the ripple effect is here with bike pricing and how the industry keeps making it possible for people to test ride bikes. Kaz, you've seen the bike industry through a few generations and yeah, do you have any guesses for what's going to happen? I mean, I don't think like when consumer direct brands started showing up, you know, when, when uh, Canyon and YTU first on the scene, it kind of seemed like that was going to be the end of bike shops and everything was going to change. But now if you look at pricing, the price of those consumer direct brands has, I'd say it's gone up a bit and the price of the non-consumer direct brands has gone down a little bit. So I think it's kind of, we're seeing this evening out where I, I just don't know if you get the deals like consumer direct sales doesn't necessarily mean the end of everything. I think which is the fear of people in the past. And I think, mm-hmm. I mean, bike brands are realizing they do have to offer online sales just because that's how as consumers, most people are used to being able to just one click and all of a sudden your toilet paper for the next month shows up at your doorstep, you know? So I think that, um, I mean, it's still going to be a place for bike shops and they're still important. People do need service on these high-end bikes, but the convenience factor is kind of hard to deny. So yeah, I don't think it's surprising to see Yeti go that route. Um, be interesting to see if pricing changes at all, but they already, their prices kind of have, have gone down slightly. If you look now, they're not, um, like they're still very high, but they're not (laughs) like, they don't stand out. I'd say as much as they used to, or even if they Mm -hmm. haven't gone down, they've like become more the normal Mm -hmm. for the brands rising. I feel I like I think the whole industry is confused about pricing right now with I I guess just like the bike shortage with COVID and then bike overstock and now new bikes seem to be all or often discounted and used bikes are very expensive. I guess I'm not 
too in touch with what's happening anyway on the market, but the industry just seems confused about pricing from what I've seen, and I think it'll have to figure out something in the future. Yeah. It, it seems too like like a lot of consumer direct brands, as you're saying, has like do tend to creep up a bit in price, but every whatever year, every couple of years, there's some new consumer direct brand that's like setting the lowest precedent for pricing. And then it seems as though they realize over time that they have to invest a lot of money into like support and, you know, just like building out a bigger brand. And so then the cost starts to creep up a bit. Well, if we think about, so what used to happen, wholesaler sells a bike to bike shop, the bike shop puts a markup on it because they have to obviously pay their staff and their rent and their bills and X, Y, Z. Say that market was between thirty and thirty-five percent, which sounds horrifically large, but you know that's obviously it's very impressive when it's a fifteen thousand dollar bike. When it's a five hundred dollar bike, there's often the same amount of work that goes into it for a lot less of the um, a lot less of the money. Because where is that thirty-five percent going? Then is like someone like Yeti now going direct sales? Just have they just basically just pocketed that? What what happens? Well, in some of these the cases, price, they, right? yeah, some of these you have kind of options where you can pick it up at a bike shop or there's diff- different ways to get the bike shipped. It can come right to your doorstep. And if they just went that route and kind of got rid of dealers, then they would be theoretically making more money. But I think they still have to maintain their dealer network in this case. And then, um, yeah, so I mean, somewhere they might be making a little more money somehow, but I don't see all their sales all of a sudden shifting to online sales. So, yeah. and Do you think it can kind of wear down a brand's prestige going this route? Do you think that a brand like Yeti, which is kind of not necessarily then like mainstream slash boutique, they kind of got that, they yeah. occupy that sort of space. What do you think that means for their brand image? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting one too. I don't see, I mean, I don't think people will hold it against them. You know, like you, you can already buy Specialized. Um, some of their bikes are available online. And I think more more and more brands have gone that way. I think Trent, like not, I don't want to say most, but like a good good selection of brands that were historically just uh, available in brick and mortar stores are available online now. So I think it's the timing seems right for them to be able to do this too. So as far as prestige, I don't know. I mean, I think, I don't know if you're a larger company, if you need to try to maintain that like super expensive, super, um, I don't know, like hard to obtain thing when your bikes are made in the same factory as everybody else's bikes. Like, I don't want to seem that as disparaging to Yeti, but like, they're making a great bike, but there's a lot of other companies. So I think you just have to be able to compete. You can't just have this super high priced unattainable item. You need people to be able to purchase your bike. So yeah. Yeah. I think that checks out. That makes sense. Moving on. Well, I guess we're still, we've already moved into the bike talk, but moving into more bike talk, the biggest news in my mind is that we've started releasing the field test videos this week. And it was an especially fascinating batch of bikes. Some are really, really strange looking and, some are almost normal looking. Um, yeah, Dario, do you have any highlights that you want to tell us from your field test testing? I mean, yeah, for those of you who've already looked at the lineup of this year's bikes, there's pretty much not a one boring bike in the bunch. Um, and that's kind of how I felt testing all of them. Like every day we would ride different bikes and every day I was excited to ride anything that I was hopping on. I think Seriously, there yeah. were some standouts in terms of things that like, like brands whose bikes I'd never ridden before or even seen in person in some cases um, without like indicating, you know, positives and negatives. I think I was super excited to ride the pole just because it's a brand that's like been big in my mind for a long time. And I owned a pole hardtail for a bit, but hadn't ridden any other aluminum bikes. And the 
Uh, Cro-Mag was an exciting one for me just because it seems like a very sensible bike. There's a lot. I mean, the Uno was super unique looking and compelling. Yeah. Could it be said that the Nikolai with that loud drivetrain is the Talking Heads t-shirt of the bike world? That seems like a stretch. It's more Please like the face more. tattoo. It's like the face <laughs> tattoo of the bike world. No, I'm just winding up Dario. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's I own different. so many t-shirts, Henry, and I wear them. <laughs> yeah. And for people it, listening, that, we do have a full, uh, I guess it's a vodcast type thing. So you, we'll be able to go into, it's a late night argument about all of these bikes. That it's very late right. night. <laughs> yeah. We were tired, I haven't but, seen that yet, but I think it was like <laughs> midnight to one thirty or something. So, it was, <laughs> sure. We were I probably brutally be, honest. <laughs> we're going to have to be, the standards will be so low that none of it can be edited or the standards will be adequate enough that none of it gets out. One or the yeah. other. Right? <laughs> we'll see what happens. Somewhere it exists though. So look for that in, uh, later next week, I think. Sweet. Well, let's go on to the main body of the podcast. Speaking of semi-shonky bikes, I don't think that's unfair to say, we're actually going to talk this week to Nico Malali about his Frameworks project. That said, those bikes have definitely got more refre- more refined over time, and they're actually getting some solid results under some of their new youth prospects. So this is a conversation we had last week in MSA, and yeah, it's great to hear Nico talk about tech. I hope you enjoy it. Nico Malali, welcome to the Pink Bike Podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. I think um, I think there's something about this Frameworks project that you're doing that's captured the public's imagination. What is it, do you think, about it that has just ignited a passion in so many people? Well, thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. Um, I think I think what people like about it is that it's genuine, and I created it out of my passion for I, I genuinely love racing downhill and i wanted to make the best bike i could and there was no marketing agenda sales agenda kind of constraining my message i could say exactly the things that i was learning my intentions with the bike and admit when i was wrong and mm. i think anyway for a lot of the brands i've i've ridden for there was bikes for sale in the market or um, prior marketing that made you have to stay in line with what they were doing. And I think this was kind of refreshing to people because there, there isn't any of that. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if you got any product manager from any of the big bike brands in a conversation, they would, of course, say they have a race team to develop their bike because they love racing, to, to stick true to, you know, and it's just interesting because I think coming straight from the horse's mouth, it, that's, that's a huge part of it as well. I think you've had see, a career fortunate enough to ride for so many big teams. So I guess there was um, Trek, Scott, YT, Intense. Yeah. Am I missing anyone? That's it. That's it. Through those brands, without trying to like, you know, bag on anyone or anything like that, did you find that brands, certain brands are more receptive to feedback than others? Yeah, I, I would. Um and honestly, they were all very receptive of the feedback. I'd say I was too young and inexperienced when I rode for Trek. And honestly, our bike was really good. Mm. Like that bike in that time, like the when we first switched to 27.5, like the 2014 session was amazing. I wish I 
appreciated then how good it was for its time. I, I really think that our bike with our package was like one of the best in the race. And I don't think I realized that while I was riding it. Mm. And now I can look back and realize that. But I, I really didn't know enough to change, give any feedback to change the bike until I went to Scott. And I realized that hopping on that bike was a stark contrast from the, the session that I raced the year previous. Mm. And I, I look back on it now and really appreciate that two years that I was on Scott. And as much as I, I as a racer, I, I hated it. I was struggling with the bike. I went from slowly climbing the results rank to then going backwards in the opposite direction, which is never a motivating feeling. But through that process, I learned why I was struggling with the bike. And Ben Walker was a project manager for Scott. And he used to be a pro free rider and could explain things in a way that an athlete would understand. Like sometimes engineering talk is difficult to understand for the average person. And I'm, I'm not formally educated in engineering or, or any of that. So for him to explain my feelings into numbers and, and kind of what things that I was um, struggling with with the bike and what things we could do to change it, um, looking back, like I'm so grateful for those two years. That mm -hmm. was a really good learning experience. Um, YT, there wasn't, like the bike was kind of set. They, they went in carbon with like their first go at it. Like there wasn't much prototyping and uh, the 27 YT, I thought was 27.5 YT was really good. The one that we raced. Um, but yeah, we didn't really get, they didn't take much feedback, but we weren't super critical of the bike. Aaron was winning everything on it too. So does that help or hinder as, as a teammate? If you're coming onto a bike and the teammates winning on everything, I imagine sometimes like, well, we've got a really good bike, but then other times it must, it's one less thing to hide. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If you're um, trying to, if that's what you want, you go yourself, you've got one less thing to hide behind, I suppose. I, I've raced with Aaron on plenty of teams and <laughs> <laughs> it was sometimes difficult for that reason. Like Aaron was so good. Like he could, if he had the best setup, like if everyone was equal, he was probably five plus seconds faster than anybody else so he could ride parts or bikes that maybe um, would pay him a little more that weren't the best equipment but still win because he was good enough so you've ridden you know i mean looking through your that trek career and then see it at scott's and you've had the chance to ride with some amazing riders over the years um, and even with Intense, you know, that one year it was like, you know, you, Jack Moyer and Aaron Gwynn is an incredibly strong, strong lineup. What was Gwynn doing then to make him so much? Because it, it felt like at some point, I think it was like maybe some year, maybe 2015 Wyndham when he won on that Specialized. And it just looked like he was sending stuff blind, like over that crest. And he just, yeah. it was like he was just rolling the dice and getting off the brakes in a way that didn't really compute for me, at least as a viewer. As a fellow rider and as a peer, was there one area that he was always, he was getting those, that five seconds over a race one, which is quite extraordinary. I'd, I'd say it was his mental strength. Um, I've spent a lot of nights sharing a hotel room with Aaron. I've spent a lot of days with him and it's interesting cause he's not cocky. Like he's a, one of the most reasonable people and super easy to get along with guys I know, but he genuinely believed that he was the best guy. And mm -hmm. sometimes I almost like listened to his um, feedback after the race when he would like there was always a reason if he didn't win like if this would have been gone differently then he would have won the race and I, I'm 
I never think like that. I always think like, well, maybe those guys are just better than me. Mm. Um, and, and it wasn't in like an arrogant way. It was in like a true belief that he was the best guy. And I think when you have that, then you can win on any day because it's never um, that you didn't have what it took to win. Yes. And on top of that, I think Aaron's like naturally a great athlete. Yeah. Like really, really good power to weight ratio. Like he's a really naturally strong guy. And he was putting in a lot of time in the gym at that time. And he, um, he just, yeah, that was at a, like 10 years ago. I don't think people were doing that. Um, at the level that he was and he wasn't, um, overly connected with mountain bike. I don't know how to put it, but like he loved to race and win. I don't think that going and riding on the weekend was like his passion. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that maybe held me back. Like I would want to go and ride my bike more than maybe I should for training. Whereas Aaron would put in the work that it took to win and kind of forget about it. He had Mm -hmm. other interests and maybe that made it easier to do his job than if it was like blended with pleasure as much yeah i think you're probably right i mean i think there's probably a sweet spot of reverence both in the way that you know yes maybe something about a sport which is so much hinged on passion the passion can come back to bite you sometimes and also i think you know i think that feeling of oh but i'm sure someone else deserves it too you know is a very, I come from a really kind place oftentimes, I think, like a high level of empathy, like we've all worked really hard, can't we all get, you know, but I think this, you know, the sole focus that's probably, I don't know if it's chicken or the egg, but coming into elite mountain biking and dominating like he did, I imagine he was like, one is probably, I imagine it was incredibly validating, incredibly addictive, you know, like, wow, this is it for me and I don't want to share it, <laughs> you know, like I'm going to turn up and I'm going to win. Looking back, you know, speaking of Aaron Grinsgren, something I was going to talk to you about, he obviously had that chainless win in Leergang, but you also had your own exploits in Norway. Would that have been 2004, 2013 or 14, something yeah, like that? Yeah, it was 2014, 2014. World, World Champs. That was quite an amazing run. At the time, did you think, like whilst you were riding, did you think? So just, just for, the, for the listeners, yeah, pretty much chain broke straight up the start hut, did the whole thing chainless, and you can hear... Warner and Nigel Page talking on the commentary like, oh, it's over, poor lad. Oh, always next year. No worries, bud. <laughs> like, yeah, best of luck, you know, safe travels. And they're like, oh my God, he's up. He's, he's up. Were you, do you feel like you want an absolute heater? And can you just explain your emotions? Because it must be quite bittersweet because when Aaron won his, you didn't. And it did, was it third or fourth you got? Uh, fourth. Fourth, yeah. yeah. So to miss out on a World Champs pod- podium, World Champs medal, it's not like, oh, everything went away and the chain broke and it turned out for the best. It's like, fuck, maybe if I'd had a chain, it might have just... How did you feel about it? Um, uh, honestly, I was, I was super positive about it. It was my best result at World Champs. And yeah, of course, if I could have delivered that run and pedaled through some of the flat sections, I think I was 2.2 or so behind G who won. Probably could have made that time up, but had plenty of opportunities to do that and never have so <laughs> yeah um it's interesting like i came out of the, that was the last race of the year is world champs and i was kind of frustrated in the couple races before that i'd been top 10 in the overall and crashed at Wyndham after qualifying top three and then in maribel at the final i got a flat and that put me into 12th place in the overall so i i lost out on like the top 10 overall which is my goal for the year 
And then coming into that race, I wanted to like end on a really positive note. And coming out of the gate, snap the chain, obviously took all the wind out of my sails. And I guess my initial instinct was like, almost like when you crash in a run, like you, you kind of like quickly just roll with it and get up and try to like make up as much time as you can. It's like, oh, I had this issue, but I'm just like charging onward. And uh, I almost took like my anger out on the track mm. and I was, uh, I, I knew I couldn't pedal. So I was, I even took lines that I never practiced, like a wider oh, line really? in a turn to carry more speed out. <laughs> and, uh, and looking back, I'm like, why don't I just do that all the time? <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't have to have a disaster to lead you into it totally it almost like put me in this mindset of like nothing to lose and like riding purely off of instinct that i've never been able to tap into again and mm. um i'm grateful that i had that run to experience it and uh yeah honestly wish i could kind of harness that more often in yeah. my racing it, it's funny you know how kind of getting the the game face on changes for different people and it, it does different things to different people some people when i used to work at polygon i always used to feel that mick when he was confident and comfortable would become just so quiet and relaxed it was almost like he was just like stoned or something He'd be like yeah whatever it's okay no do whatever it's it's all good and then i felt tracy who had maybe some more of a, like a combative approach to her racing would almost get fired up it was really interesting because when they're both going well one would be getting slightly boxier going into the race weekend well on, on, the, on the race day and Mick would be becoming so much more chilled what's your if you you seem from you know outwardly like somebody that's very much a procedure and likes a likes a rhythm with things what's your race preparation like and is there a certain place you're trying to get to in your mind um i've i've learned that like just being focused and and doing the routine that i set for myself is like the easiest way to get myself to the start line in a good mindset it's like one of the toughest things as a downhill racer is the time that you have. Like there's so much time to sit and think about your run that it makes you, uh, all the riders are nervous. And the more time you have to think about it, it can almost paralyze you if you don't use it to get into the right mindset. So yeah, normally I have my pre-race routine, like after practice, I'll plan to, it, with the two hours I have tomorrow before quality, I'll like eat lunch quickly after, try to chill out and review some GoPro footage and then leave an hour before my start time to go up the lift, do my warm up on the trainer, listening to music. And you just kind of like do one step at a time. And then before you know it, it's like you're in the start gate. And then that's almost the easy part. Like once you're in the gate, it's like all the lead up to it that can be the, the stressor. So I guess for me, just the process is, is what I'm after. And I want to talk about some other areas of pro process it feels like with your relationship with you know your local mountain bike seeing are you from tennessee no um i'm from pennsylvania mm -hmm. and i've i live now in north carolina which okay. is right on the border of tennessee oh okay so about 10 years i've lived in that area the south i guess you'd call it like the appalachian mountains and the mm. southern appalachians um and and in terms of the process you approach to kind of well, let's call it as a make downhill racing better in your region. <laughs> what was embarking on that process like? Was it just like, we're going to do one race and see what happens? Was it, did you have a vision? What was, what was your thinking? Well, actually, I, I wanted to do some preseason races to get ready for the season. And uh, Lucas Shaw, 
was living like 30 minutes from where, where I was and we would train together a lot. And you'd see guys in New Zealand get to do preseason races. And I, I've actually gone and done some of them at that time as well. And I wanted to get a chance that we could have like almost a scrimmage between the U.S. riders preseason. And that was the motivating factor in the beginning to say like, hey, we can organize a race. Like we'll just set the date. We'll go prep the track and it'll be like just a good weekend of, of like preseason practice and get to learn some things, work out the kinks before heading over to the World Cups. And where is it now? Is, is it more than one venue? Is it... Yeah. How, so, how many ven- and what's the series called? If you could explain to the listeners a bit about. Sure. The series is called the Downhill Southeast Series. And um, this year we had seven races. So we started off with just the three race series and kind of this is actually the eighth year of it. So wow. We started in 2016 and um, yeah, incrementally grew. And we actually got huge during COVID because in the South, we didn't really have any restrictions and we. Um, yeah, we just said like, hey, we're going to have the race. If you don't feel safe, then don't come. But we'll, we'll be there racing if, if you want to. And we had so many people that were kind of pent up and wanted to do something that we saw the numbers just go up in 2020 and 21. And then the past two years, they've kind of stayed there, which wow. is super cool. And we got a, what's, what's really cool to me is we have so many young kids, like half the field, like over 150 of the racers are like 15 and under. And seeing all those kids out there, they may have tried it during COVID, but now they come back and they want to keep doing it. And now downhill is their thing. Um, it's really inspiring and it's really good for the future of the sport. And how did you get into downhill racing? What was your entrance into the sport like? Because I think we're seeing more and more, you know, top, top level North American athletes, which I think is fantastic. I think that it's such a Eurocentric thing for so long. And I think seeing, you know, yeah, more North Americans is, is definitely good for the sport. And I think, you know, maybe 10 years ago, I think there was a couple and now it's like so many, so many strong riders. But I think as a kid getting into the sport, racing isn't some foregone conclusion of how that's how they're going to spend their time or that's, that's what their relationship with the bike is going to be like. Like, well, I never raced a mountain bike. I just loved riding, you know? How, what was your relationship like getting into racing? And yeah, what, where do you think, you know, do you think US downhill's in a healthy place? What, you know, I know you're kind of nurturing some young talent with Acer and kind of what, what, what his sort of learning experience is like as a, as a pre, cause he's 15 or 16, but he's pre junior World Cup. So yeah, how, how you got into it and what you think the, the experience is like for a current developing athlete? Yeah, I, I got into it, um, through my dad actually raced the Norba nationals back in oh, the day cool. in like expert category. And yeah, he, he loved downhilling. So, um, it's interesting, like Richie Rude his dad also was into downhilling and we're both like second generation of downhill riders in our family. Um, and we grew up riding together a bunch too. Our dads raced against each other, which is super cool. Cool. Um, but, uh, yeah, I started out in BMX before I did downhill because it's just at that time. Now there's like really cool little small downhill bikes that kids can ride. But at that time, like the youngest category was under 18 and the bikes were all just a size small downhill bikes so there wasn't really a a bike for a kid Uh, whereas bmx you could go race against kids your age and there was bikes specific for it and it was just um more conducive to young kids so i did that until i was 12 and i wasn't really good at it but at like a regional level i was pretty competitive and at that time like it's all i knew and i loved to go to the race and compete against 
my peers and it was like addicting when you when you did a race you were proud of and it kind of made me um competitive and like like the competition of it um then when i was 13 i did my first downhill race and at that time this was like 2005 or 6 uh they were starting to build more like machine built features like jumps on the trails and coming from bmx i could do a lot of that stuff um better than maybe some of the kids that only rode mountain bikes in the under 18 category so like right away i could be pretty competitive even though i was 13 and then 14 like i could race in the under 18 category and be competitive with the older kids and that being like smaller and and younger that made me have to be better to try to race against those guys and um and yeah that, that's how i got into it when i first did my my first downhill race it was just I love the fact that it was you and the track and the clock and not racing head to head like in BMX. The goal was to like get um, your elbow around somebody or like get inside of them in the first turn. And in downhill, like if the guy had a better time than you is because he he just did a better job than you. Mm. And you could be friends with that guy. (laughs) (laughs) So I I just enjoyed the culture of it way more and wanted to continue with it. Um, And I think like the current state of downhill is really healthy. Like with our series, the Northwest cup does a great job. They just started a series, the downhill Rocky series in the Rocky mountains. And then in the Northeast, they have the Eastern States cup in the U S. So we've got like each region has their series and downhill seems to be like for a while. Enduro was pulling all the downhill riders. Cause it was like, you didn't wait in line all day. You just went and rode your bike and you got to do six race runs. And, um, for a while that was like a better way to spend your weekend if you're a hobby rider but now i think we've refined like how to do amateur races so people weren't just sitting in a chair in the parking lot or waiting in line for the lift now they get to ride more um bike parks have better facilities and downhill seems like it's more popular than enduro regionally and nationally now as far as participation and like core interest goes but i think bike parks have got better like i think 10 years ago a bike park trail could more often than not kind of crap yeah and they now have managed to i don't know what they're doing now but they managed to make bike park runs more engaging and you can go to most bike parks and you find something that you really like when honestly i used to go to most bike parks and half the time i'd be like this is kind of crap <laughs> um i'd like to also just touch upon um is it asa or asa 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 yeah he seems like a genuinely exceptional talent I would agree. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's kind of come onto your frameworks team. What sort of, how did you, how did you kind of make contact? Was it a case of like, you know, cause I imagine he's now going to be quite a sought after, sought after rider. You got one like a long-term deal or is it like a, oh, we, they were just an incubator for you to go and do your next thing? Uh, yeah. So we have, have him signed for 24 and 25. He's going to be a junior the next two seasons and he's um, committed with us. And, more than that, I've offered him like a profit sharing within our company. So no if in the future we are selling frames, like he's going to get a percentage of that. And I think it's a good way to keep him invested in the team and the brand yeah. long term. And like as we succeed together, then he sees a part of that. So um, yeah, I, I believe in him 100% and we'd love to keep him on the team as long as possible. Um, hopefully for his whole career and grow together into being a top level team with a top level rider like him. 
the 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 way that we got him on the team actually was like we were looking at um and when i say we me my brother and my mechanic ancho are are the ones that are doing the whole project together and um i wanted i felt the pressure that my bike was really good like the product that i made was awesome but i wasn't good enough of a rider to show how good it was at this stage in my career especially with um creating the team um getting all the sponsors and managing that as well as designing the frames and doing all the production of the frames and the development um i love doing it but i felt like with all that and i wouldn't change any of it i just couldn't show as the bike's full potential as well as someone who had nothing else to do but just ride it fast mm -hmm. so i was looking at other riders that i could bring into the program that could take advantage of all this hard work that i did to create this team that had all the things you needed and nothing you didn't through my experience racing my whole career and kind of take that and run with it. And Asa came around at just the right time. Like last year at the US Open, I met him for the first time. I'd watched some of his races um, as a 16 and under in the US and he was progressing at every one and I was keeping my eye on him. And then he raced pro at the US Open and beat me. He finished third and I finished fourth. And actually behind the podium of that race, I was like, what are you doing tomorrow? Would you like to stay and test ride this bike? Mm. I think that the bike that I have, you'll really like. And he was, stayed the next day, rode it, and he loved the bike. I think at that age, you're probably not so picky, but he did feel comfortable on it right away. And he saw the, at least he listened to the story I told him about how all the work that I was putting into it and believed in that. and. Um, more so i was impressed with his riding than um than anything else that day we went up on the track that we raced the day before and it rained overnight it didn't rain at all that weekend and he's from colorado where it almost never rains and i told him let's just do some do some runs but like scope the track first and he's like okay cool didn't ask me if we needed to stop we're doing full runs what we're doing got in the gate full runs race pace didn't matter that it rained and it was like his audition. I was following yeah. him the whole time and he was just such good technique, such commitment. And, um, at that point he was only 15. So I, I told him I'd love to help him as much as I could. And, um, this season I supported him with frames and at any race that we were at together, um, Ancho helped him with mechanic work. And as that was going well, I offered him a contract for the next two years to race the world cup. and we agreed on it and uh i'm really, look, really looking forward to that yeah that's so cool do you think you know with your bike you know you said that well obviously like riding it because you make you can make it kind of pretty much any way you want there's a obviously a learning experience involved but it's always going to develop to your preferences you know in a world where it feels like suspension's getting more and more intricate than ever i mean we've only just today or well, the last couple of days seen had the cover taken off the demo and it's shown this, I mean, incredibly intricate suspension work and with elements that are pulling and pushing the shock in ways that are quite, quite novel. Um, and then obviously we've seen the thing with the high pivots, which are very, very extreme. Do you think, well, what's your opinion on the suspension? Like, you could have a, a whatever I'm saying, just a four bar. Yeah, that, that's what my bike is. I mean, that's what um, the demo is as well. They have a linkage additionally pu pushing the shock. But um, for me, like I look at 
the outputs. Like what are all the kinematic outputs that you get from the frame, leverage ratio, um, instance center, axle path, like looking at all this stuff and what does that suspension system give you and what are your goals with ride quality? Um, I learned pretty well like what numbers I liked in the bike and what numbers are easy to tune the shock for. But you can you can get a similar feel from drastically different layouts. And you can also get certain things with certain layouts that you can't with others. And with every um, pro normally comes a con, like it's a balance of all the numbers together. You have to ride the whole bike. You can't just ride one of those kinematic points <laughs> at a time. So um, like when you turn one dial up, and it does something really well in a certain situation, there's normally a negative that comes with it, just being perfectly honest. And um, in addition to that, the more complexity you add to the bike, the more opportunities you have for failures in racing, for adding weight, um, adding things that can give you a headache, you know, like adding a floating brake mount, an idler pulley, an extra linkage, all those things on your computer can do things to the bike that you can't achieve without it, but then you have to actually fit it on the bike in reality and live with it. And sometimes living with it may not be worth the, the added hassle. So it's just a balance of that. And depending on every person's goals, they'll have a different opinion on it. Um, but I try to, I, my, my goals are to have the simplest bike I can with the maximum performance i think that's a pretty simple way to put it and to achieve true simplicity you need to go pretty far down the rabbit hole of complexity to actually appreciate the simplicity and do you think if we thought about you know nico malali's like perfect conceptual bike what would that look like compared to the bike you're riding is it you know what i mean like if if we you know, if, if money was absolutely no object and <laughs> carbon you know never failed or whatever or blah, 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 blah. what would what would it what would it look like do you think if you had to make the fastest bike over one run yeah i mean if we're talking conceptually i'd like a perfectly vertical straight axle path that didn't change at all um and what, why is that i think it's super consistent and uh as a rider the more predictability you have the more um you can trust and push the bike it does exactly what you expect um, I, th I think also, sorry to just interrupt because I'm really saying, but I completely agree. I think that there's a, with these really rearward axle paths, it doesn't go rearward forever. And at that inflection point depends what the shock's doing and what the anti-wise is doing, but it can give you really weird things. That I think is often not really talked about because the, it will just hang up, but just at a different place. It doesn't do it straight off the bat. It just does it say at half travel. But that's sometimes where you hit the things hardest or where you're on the brakes. And if it sends you into the, say if you get on the anchors, sends you into the stroke, then it goes into the mid-stroke of the bike and it, then it hangs up. It yeah. can be a really hard thing to understand and trust. And I don't know, I think there are elements like that which are complications compared to something, like you said, a bit, a bit straighter. Yeah, and as I said, with every pro normally comes a con. Like when you're off the brakes, just rallying through rocks, square rough stuff, a uh, really rearward axle path feels great. But that rearward axle path has a forward stroke on rebound and um, your mm -hmm. axle, like your the, the, the wheelbase of the bike and your rear center is changing a lot in um, 
the point in the travel that you're handling the bike in corners and when the bike is changing its uh, rear center it's sometimes hard to predict and wait where you want it as a rider that was one thing with my bike i tried to make from sag to about 120 mil travel the axle only changes less than two millimeters wow. which is hard to notice and i think that gives it a really predictable feel and predictable handling um so it has like a pretty high main pivot for a bike that doesn't use an idler pulley to get that kind of neutral axle path and then it does come forward about 10 millimeters at bottom out but the spot where you ride it is right around that inflection point and i think that gives it like i said a predictable feel and so this bike this conceptual perfect bike that you don't, you don't actually have to go and make you'll be relieved to know we'll keep it in imagination <laughs> land it has this you know vertical axle path what would be the next thing on your list um trying to get as much of the weight onto the mainframe or the suspended mass and as much of it off the unsuspended mass to allow the suspension to move more freely without the inertia of the weight having to um go back and forth from compression to rebound um probably make it as light as i could like i see some people messing with weights but in all the bikes that i've tested if performance is equal normally the lighter bikes are easier to place on the trail and easier to ride normally the parts that perform better also have a heavier weight tag attached to it so you it's hard to quantify only one at a time um but yeah that that's kind of where i would get to maybe some sort of a gearbox that worked really well mm -hmm. um putting as much of that weight low and centered in the mainframe more more so just on the mainframe a, a bike that springs to mind and some someone's doing it it's not the same project as yourself because it does have more i think commercial considerations but that gamex bike do you think hmm, i mean it's, i think it's very interesting i think i think it, it's super cool as you go around the pit do you find yourself cherry picking attributes sometimes or at least that initially like oh i'd quite like if i could have that from there and then this one's head head angle or whatever geometry and then this or are you so far down the rabbit hole now you're just like actually no i i've got the i've got the foundation knowledge now it's about actually kind of charging forward rather than looking at my periphery no i love to see all the other bikes like as a fan i'm genuinely interested in it i i actually have been over to see the gamex bike a couple of times this season and i think what they're doing is so cool i haven't ridden it myself and it has also so many variables with the components that i would love to see how the bike feels and, and isolate only the changes that their frame has to mine and see you know what that felt like in numbers but i i think what they're doing is awesome and i think that people putting more time onto gearboxes and development is is really cool personally i'm super happy with the way that my downhill drivetrain works um in in theory i think the gearboxes are are a better idea but i don't think right now they um outweigh the 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 simple function of a regular drivetrain for downhill mm -hmm. but in the future with more development I, I believe they will and i'm glad those guys are pushing it so that as soon as it's good i'll put it on my bike <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally and you can cite this podcast but like i was rooting for you from the start man. <laughs> um when we think about geometry how extreme did you go on your bike where, where are you at now just you know kind of maybe like reach 
rear center head angle and, and stack as well if, if you know it yeah geometry isn't too crazy i mean if you look at most downhill bikes if you go too far off of the the what's normal you'll be um probably not in a good spot um and i, and I rode a bunch of bikes bikes that i've raced before or other bikes that i tested before making mine that i was pretty confident with the geometry that I was going to choose. And like I said, it's nothing that crazy anyway. My, um, my head angle is 63.25 degrees. I didn't want to go too slack with it. I think that the bike, um, you can get a lot, uh, good handling in turns and like good weight to the front wheel with a little bit steeper head angle. So, um, that's where I'm at with that. The reach is 485, uh, almost a standard size large for most bikes. Um, the stack is on the head tube it's only 110 um, but i'm running 25 millispacers on top of that and yeah the idea was that in the future if we make different size bikes like we 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 made actually a medium last year just to try it and see if we could scale our bike down that um it's easy to add spacers under the top of the stem on a downhill bike so 110 gives you a good range there um the bottom bracket height is 342 the chainstay length is 460 which i guess is a little long it's a little but it's not actually that out there and th- that dakota dakota norton on his intense is 460 i think Casso's on like a 465 with those yeah you know and i think my standard like large v10 is 455 or something um and they are getting longer i think um I quite like, I, I think the next thing in bike design, I think the next generation of enduro bikes is going to be steeper in the head angle. Yeah. I think we're going to go higher stack, longer stays, and you realize you can get a lot of the same stability, but with something a bit pointier through slow speed stuff. Um, and without that sort of wheel flop of, of doom as you can get yeah. with some super slack bikes. Um, are you interested or have you experimented with any steering dampers or any, you know, Canyon have that kiss system, which despite looking like something out of a food processor, is a bicycle part that you can strap to your top tube. I actually had one on test on the Spectral and it actually did a really wonderful job to be fair of integrating it. And I wasn't convinced, not only was I not convinced by the the wheel straightener, the, the, the whole kind of ideology behind it, but I also wasn't convinced because I didn't think that this relatively middle of the road trail bike was the right place to put it on. If you're going to do something to fight wheel flop, go 59 degrees, go crazy, you know what I mean? Have you had an experiment with any external steering aids, I suppose? Not recently. I rode a Hopi steering dampener back in the day, mm. and uh, that was a hydraulic one. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it was hard to get used to. I, I, it had its moments, but it just, I didn't find that it was worth putting on the bike. And yeah, the Canyon one's really interesting. Um, Luca told me that it also almost gives you some resistance as you turn to like get the rear wheel to kick out. So it almost makes the whole bike turn differently than, than without it gives. Yeah. Just that like resistance to the frame to almost push the rear end mm-hmm. as well. I think it's really interesting. I'd love to try it. Yeah. I haven't. It's super inter- it is, it is definitely worth trying. I think. Um, and also I just, you know, like in this world that we're talking about of people having like, you know, bold claims about race development and doing the things their own way. Actually, a lot of brands seem to want to homogenize on the same ideas and just do it slightly nicer or do it in carbon, you know. Actually, I think for Canyon, this massive German brand to do something kind of wacky, I think it's great. Fucking good on them. Like, I think yeah. that is genuinely, like, so cool. Um, similar to when, like, Cannondale did that two-shock bike. I was like, you know what? Actually, fair play. That's, that's all right by me. <laughs> yeah. It's super cool. I mean, you got to try it. 
Like that's that's the thing you always learn. You'll either find that it worked well or or that it didn't, and you'll know better. Like once you leave no stone unturned, you'll be more confident that mm-hmm. you were either correct in your decision or that maybe you need to change. And I think that yeah, those guys ended up like the theory of having your your damper at a different leverage rate as your spring is is a really cool idea in the end i remember matt simmons raced with with only a normal shock most of the time so he didn't actually separate them Mm -hmm. most of the times he raced it but they tried it and and learned that which i think is that's that's what you need to do so cool um when we look at kind of how frameworks is sort of in the industry how it's considered in the industry i imagine there's a tremendous amount of kudos from the bike industry and imagine component or wheel manufacturers want to uh, be on the same be on the same ticket as yourself like fuck if he runs our tires that's like wow that's like a really big in- in- endorsement um how have you found largely the response from the industry and has it ever been a case of people being like wow nico's doing something kind of cool we should try and bring him in houses have you had any offers like that from other brands um not necessarily offers to like work for other brands i it's tough because you have um they can almost like they can almost not trust you to keep the information that they have it's it's difficult like with bike brands they want to keep their knowledge to themselves like they've earned it by lots of engineering and testing time and um i've found that it's tough to share enough information to be useful mm-hmm. you can share ideas but um Sponsor-wise, I've had a lot of success. I think, for one, I started the team at the right time. It was big marketing budgets in twenty <laughs> end of 2021. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they had the money to spend, and I came with a unique idea. And um, it, like you said, if, if I was now in the position to choose any components I wanted, when I chose to use this, it was a, a really positive affirmation for that brand um so yeah that that's been a huge part of it and uh a really good relationship that i have with the sponsors because of that um when you sort of left intense it happened at a similar time towards i suppose intense barking on their own prototyping thing and it was like both turning up to lords with quite interesting sort of you know these these kind of let's face it like homemade would be unfair but sort of like garage made bikes yeah. Um, was there com- in that last season that you had an intent? Were there conversations between you and the staff or the people that, you know that continued over, where you were both all like, "We're just gonna," I don't know. Did the, did the seed to make your own bike get planted because of the kind of the culture around that team, and they're all kind of like maybe looking for answers that they currently didn't didn't have? De- definitely, I'd say like the development process of the bikes that we race with Intense is what made me want to do this myself. Um, and we never touched on that with the other teams that we talked about earlier, but intense, we were in the position that they had the resources to make any changes we wanted. We were just limited to when I was on the team using the VPP design that intense had been using for the past 20 years and had built all their marketing around and was what their engineers were comfortable with using. So while we could request geometry changes and some kinematic changes had to fit in a certain package and struggling with that package is what 
led me to download some engineering programs <laughs> on my computer and learn that I can achieve what I wanted to in a lot simpler way with a four bar design than I could at that time with the, with the VPP bike that we were working on. And going on to intense, if you know, you had Jack Moyer, yourself, Gwyn, previously that, M- I mean the M29, I suppose, that actually seen quite a lot of success under that intense factory racing with yeah, Moyer, uh, Dean Lucas, Charlie Harrison, but it felt like none of you really gelled with it. I don't want to throw them under the bus. I mean, everyone makes good bikes, which are good at different times. And there's a huge amount of personal preference in it as well. But why did, did you have a way, you know, you're coming on to see us. fuck, we've got, we've got ourselves into a good bike. Yeah. You know, especially when it's had, I mean, similar to something like maybe when I know like people following the Athertons into stuff, it's almost like, wow, they've, they've won on this bike. But also it's like, fuck, if, if we're not going well, then we've got nowhere, again, we've got like nowhere to hide. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was your feelings on that bike? And was it a strange kind of culture? Maybe no one seemingly gelling with it that well? I think it changed a lot from the year before when they had a uh, aluminum prototype. The, like Jack called it the tank, was the aluminum one that he and Dean raced. I think Jack got second at Fort William with that bike. Mm-hmm. And, and had, Dean got second here, hey. Yeah, they had several podiums on that aluminum M29 prototype. And I think between the prototype and the production carbon fiber frame, when they went into carbon, there was a lot of design aspects that were made a priority. So they wanted the bike to look a certain way. And to achieve that, they had to move their pivot points around to get it to look that way. And that made the kinematics not as desirable as the alloy bike that they had the year before. Maybe without and not to throw those guys at intense under the bus, but maybe without fully realizing how much of a ride quality effect it would have. Um, and then also we had, we, we were struggling with some of our components that we chose to use that year, that um, switching the team from the Intense factory racing team with Charlie, Dean, and Jack, that was full SRAM, RockShox, Maxis. When we transitioned, we were um, E13, Kenda, TRP. And uh, we struggled as well with the components mm. um, in addition to the bike. And, and it was difficult because a lot of bikes, of race bikes you see here will have custom linkages or some sort of small modification to the stock bike to make it specific for that rider's preferences. And the package with the M29, all the links were inside the frame and they were so yeah. tightly packed that we couldn't really change much. We um, eventually got a new link and my shock would touch the frame as it went through the travel and kind of wear the paint off the frame, but um, that was worth it. And we got the bike to feel better once we had the new linkage, but like anything, it takes going racing with it to really, like you can ride it in the winter and try to get to a good spot, but you don't really learn until you go through several races what you're missing. And um, yeah, we just... Jack and I struggled with that that bike that year. Yeah, it's it can be real, real tough, really, really tough. Um, kind of moving towards you know, kind of rounding this off. It feels like, you know, in other sports, like in road cycling, they have the road captain, you know, kind of who's the the sort of um, <laughs> maybe not like the adult. You know, when you're in school and the teacher would leave and they'd be like, "I'm putting such and such in charge," <laughs> it'd be that sort of thing. And obviously, in 
in soccer or whatever or team sports they tend to have an authority on the pitch that's going to talk to the referee and make sure everyone gets a fair deal um, it feels like you're considered one of those voices by the athletes how do you feel feel about that responsibility and also how do you factor in listen there's always been concerns about downhill when Red Bull were doing it it wasn't a picnic there was lots of complaints and so imagine there's a lot of pressure on riders like Nico you, you're a really good spokesperson for the sport this is what I feel really strongly do something yeah. but actually it's, it's hard right <laughs> yeah it was interesting um, last year we had a bunch of meetings as just riders about trying to form a riders union or a riders association to unify our feedback as riders to the people running the events and at those meetings I think at one of them Loic suggested without telling me first in front of <laughs> all the other riders that I should be the the voice of the group and for what I was honored that he, he asked me to do that I, I do think I have a unique perspective having organized a lot of those races like we talked about um, I've also organized some UCI C1 downhill races oh, no at way. Windrock in the yeah. past so I've been involved with both sides of it and a lot of times I see the complaints as, that they have as riders and they don't always understand what's fully possible um, that some of their requests are just not really going to happen mm -hmm. um, so I, I do think I have a good perspective for it but I wasn't also looking for another thing to do yeah um, but I, I accepted and I said like I'll be glad to help you guys with whatever you need um, I'm not going to be outwardly chasing you down for feedback and trying to report that back to the UCI or Warner Brothers. But uh, if you need something, like I'll be happy to communicate. And we we this winter had a, a video call with Chris Ball and Rory, and it was pretty intimidating because they asked me to be the one to speak on the behalf of the group. And there were 60 other of the top 60 World Cup riders on the call oh shit with me <laughs> and and they're not stoked with chris ball at this point there's so much um, misinformation and they don't know what's going on and they want me to like roast him and just like tell him he's wrong and that we demand this and i just a lot of the things he said were pretty reasonable as well i wasn't in a position to roast him i asked him all the questions and most of the time i said if we didn't agree like as riders we don't really agree with that We'd like to come back to you with uh, like more feedback, but I I didn't have it in me to just let him have it, <laughs> and I think that's what they were looking for. <laughs> um, what did what happened? Is the riders' union still sort of a thing? Because it felt like it was really getting some momentum, and it thought, wow, like there could be this sort of slight chaos of the changing the um, rights holder could lead to a bit of opportunity for the riders to really grab a load of control. Yeah. I don't know if that'd be good for the sport, be bad for the sport, or and it, did it kind of fizzle out, or is it still ongoing? It, it's still ongoing. It's difficult because the UCI recognizes um, a riders' representative for men and women in each discipline, and Greg Menar and Miriam Nicole are the two for downhill. They're elected every four years, and I actually put my name in for it at Valdezol Worlds in 2021. They elect them at Worlds, and. A lot of the top riders, like the vote between me and Greg was pretty close. Like he had like 55 votes and I had 50 or something. And a lot of the top guys, um, I think voted for me and like they were, they thought I could do a good job, but there's so many people at world champs that maybe don't even know me. <laughs> they like see Greg Menar and they're all going to vote for Greg. Um, so Greg got the spot and 
I do think that Greg does the best job he can with the time that he has, but I just felt like in the position that I was, I had maybe a little more time to put towards it. And I, I was, I would like to do that. Um, and I think that's why Loic suggested that I be the, the voice of this group. Um, but we weren't officially recognized because ESO has to go through that channel to go through the riders reps for any questions. And they did take the time to meet with us. And Rory does take the time to talk to me and Emily Siegenthaler is, um, the, her and I are both, I guess the voices of the group, her in as a woman and me as a man. Um, and we take all the feedback on board and talk with them. And to be honest, Emily does a lot more than I do. She takes notes. She, um, takes meeting, um, feedback and presents it to them. So she's working a lot harder on it than I am. Um, and uh, like I said, I'm just waiting for them to ask me to do something and I'm happy to go and, and do that for the group. But I'd say, yeah, it's, it's still going. We have, um, a WhatsApp group that we all put ideas into and can communicate. And mainly it's to do with safety, um, things on the track or things with the schedule that we think would be safer for the riders. And most of the time they listen to it. Um, at least if we can give our feedback, like if, if you look at the group chat, it's a mess. There's so many different things going on. Memes floating about. <laughs> and, and if we, like our goal is to take all that and go to them with like one message, not have to deal with all this. Like if they read that, they'd be like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. Um, so I, it, it's not, um, charging ahead full steam, but it's, uh, it's still ongoing and I think there's a place for it. If we talk about rider safety for a moment, you know, tracks seem to have got faster and faster in recent years. Um, it feels like it makes for very impressive racing. It makes for really, really cool sort of visuals. In all the years you've been racing downhill, this is a kind of a strange question, but I don't know if it'd be hard to even answer, but I'm making a hard enough job of asking it. When do you, when do you think over the last 10, however many years, the downhill tracks were the closest to making downhill safe for everyone? Because it's obviously an inherently risky sport, but we've gone through sort of slower natural tracks, maybe, to um, the fast sort of 2016, 2017, 2018 bike parky tracks, it feels like, to now the sort of like really actually kind of, I think they look amazing tracks to ride. I'm not saying I'd want to race all of them, but they actually do look like a hybrid of the two now. And I think the tracks are really impressive. What do you think is the safest way to go? Because it's hard because it's, it's inherently a very risky thing people are doing and the risk is sometimes what makes it so good you know yeah um i'd say the speed is the most dangerous thing um maybe not for uh the number of injuries but the severity of them like if you crash going fast it's more likely than it's going to be a worse injury and when we started going to those bike park tracks the tracks got a lot faster and the, most of the time the surfaces were hard packed and if you crashed on them it wasn't going to be good um and now we're less bike park but still really high speed and it does look good on tv it makes tight racing but you're just pushing the limits at a sort of dangerous zone in, in some ways is that sort of kind of not always harsh to say the worst of both worlds but a quite a compromised thing because it feels like we're keep, keeping elements of the speed but we're also keeping they're getting so some of them are so technical like look at that andor track it was changing every run there were some sections you know, even in practice, it was so dusty, I think people couldn't really even see. You know, there were stumps, there were this, there was that, there was rubber matting last year. It was a lot. 
it just felt like shit this is this is pretty like we were talking before but it used to be the Monster Am was the high speed track yeah and now it's just the just another track yeah I, I mean I, I think it does I think before we went to high speed when it was slow and um, like high tech then there was less injuries and that doesn't you can never tell on the video how gnarly that stuff is as when you're in there in person so it definitely creates a better show now and if you could wave your magic wand and host like the Nico Mullally Invitational of any track you've ever raced on and you're not allowed to say Windrock <laughs> <laughs> where, where do you think it would be just the most impressive venue the track everything uh, I really like this one as a venue. Like, there's plenty of space here. Yeah, and no um, big trucks. There's so much room. It's great. <laughs> yeah, we're not fighting for every square meter like in Europe. Um, the lift's good. There's been a huge crowd the past few years. When Finn won last year, the atmosphere was amazing. I think the track's really good. Um, so this is probably my favorite all around, all considered. I really like the tracks in Maribor that we raced. I thought those were... And Slovenia's just wonderful country as well the Biana is beautiful it's there's, yeah. there's so much great stuff about it yeah and it's um a lot more affordable when you're running a team as well <laughs> <laughs> um when we think think about great atmosphere and yeah like you said i mean msa you know leger so those french crowds how much difference does that make to you as a racer is, is it something you enjoy kind of at the time in retrospect and does it affect your head game at all like going in and just seeing walls of people lining the track yeah, I mean, it's it's really cool. Uh, it's hard to say how much it affects you. Like last weekend at Snowshoe, being in the US, um, every person that was going down the lift to get to the finish, when you were coming up, they were yelling something to you. They're all positive, encouraging stuff that made you feel good. People chanting your name. Super cool. Um, and you want to do a good job. Um, those guys came out to see you. They're encouraging you. So it maybe adds a little bit of pressure that you want to deliver in front of the crowd um but when you're actually just trying to work and do your job as racer as a racer it i almost prefer less people like mm. quiet and uh, no one there would, would be fine um but then in in hindsight looking back like the covid year was felt pretty dead when there was nobody there so, it was kind of weird yeah i think even it's i don't know I think riders that had their breakout result or whatever in that year almost don't necessarily count it in the same way. It's like three quarters of a, which, you know, they're racing on these same, I know it's only two venues, but really hard tracks. It was really technical and it was the same track as everyone else. Yeah. They only could do what they could do, right? Yeah. And they beat all the best guys. Yeah. But yeah, it seems like it was cheapened a little bit. But yeah. Yeah. Um, so going forward, we've actually got a bike coming in for review, I think, which is super exciting from Frameworks. I think, um, it's kind of got the mountain biking world's curiosity. It's funny, we did recently did a group test in Whistler and there was all these very fancy high pivot carbon bikes with storage containers and all these fancy drivetrains. And there was this one steel bike that was more comfortable and tracked better than, than any of them. What do you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, just if you could briefly just kind of speak to what the vague plans are with, you don't have to go into specific, what, what the vague plans are with frameworks and what your hopes are for the future? Yeah, I'm excited that you guys are going to test the enduro bike. I gave it to Dario at Crankworks to ride for a day. And I was, he, he had asked to ride it and I, I wasn't there. It was Ace's personal bike and it was the first enduro bike that I ever made. And I knew making that prototype that there was a lot of things that could be better. I just wanted to make 
a first proof of concept before spending a lot of money. And when Dario asked to ride it, I was like, yeah, you could take it. But I was a little bit worried that, um, you know, I knew it was rattly. I knew it was heavy, but I knew the suspension also worked really well. So I, I hoped he appreciated that. And um, in the end, he wrote a really nice article about the bike, which was, which was awesome. Um, but yeah, my plans are um, to offer a small run of frames to the public next year. First will be the downhill bike. And then with another rendition of the enduro bike, I think we'll be ready to offer some of those too. I definitely didn't start this to try to make a bike company or to sell anything. And honestly, if I had it up to me, we'd never sell anything. And I'm sure you'd probably never go to work again, <laughs> but uh, you have to make money. And uh, with all the work that we've put into this, it's a really good way to generate some income to continue to do cool things like this. So cool, man. I think as well, I'd, I'd like to just mention that I've had a couple of smaller bike brands or component manufacturers bumped into them this weekend. It's happened twice, actually, where they've said, and um, how much do we have to pay to get something reviewed on Pinkbike? No one pays. We don't, we don't charge reviews. And if you're at home and you made your cool bike and you think, oh, I wonder what the, you know, we can get in touch, you know, speak to one of us over the PM because I think it's so cool. And there's so many refreshing takes on the mountain bike and it never stops evolving. And, um, yeah, I'm super, I love the collaborative approach to mountain bike design because it feels like everyone's always like, well, oh, what's going on over here? And trying to, you know, pick, pick that attribute. But Nico, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed the chat. Um, best of luck this weekend. And um, yeah, I'm really curious to hopefully swing a leg over that bike myself. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I'll have to send you the downhill bike too. Yeah, too, right? <laughs> I'll come to Windwalk. All right. So that was Nico Malali. Now, Nico's obviously doing loads for the mountain bike scene in his local area. And there's somebody that's got a question to ask about the riding and mountain bike scene in ours. So this is from All Mountain Rider 81, um, a dying breed. He's now actually changing his name to um, Enduro Light Rider 84. <laughs> and <laughs> he says, for Henry, Kaz and the team, myself and a couple of buddies are itching to visit British Columbia to ride having never been there before. Travelling from the UK and they're hoping to spend around 10 days. We know there is so much in so many different places. So our question is, how do we make best make use of those 10 days? We're all capable riders that steer towards the natural feeling of terrain um, more than, you know, the bike park stuff potentially. And they're looking for some big days. So, I mean, that's a lot. BC is, is quite a big place. Kaz, you've ridden skinnies in every single corner of BC. Which is the best skinny they should ride? And how long should they hike in for it? Yeah, the best skinnies. No, I mean, realistically, <laughs> 10 days is pretty good. They'll be able to get like a good good selection of all the places. I'd say spend two to three days in each little zone. And I would just work the Sea to Sky Corridor just because it's so easily accessible. You don't have to really go hunting for the trails. Like there's more. Obviously, there's a lifetime worth of riding. But if you just drove north and started in Pemberton and then worked your way back down towards Vancouver, there's a 10-day trip there for sure. And, you know, so just Pemberton, Whistler, a you know, bike park for a day go down to Squamish and then finish maybe like the North shore and then fly back home out of Vancouver. You'd have an excellent time. Without sounding, I'm going to piss off lots of people from Vancouver here. <clears throat> Would it not be better to, as you drive South after Squamish to get on a ferry and go ride either 
somewhere across there, maybe like Power yeah, River. Yeah, you could. The ferry's just like $300. The, the ferry's expensive. Also, I mean, budget. And like North Shore, you have to visit the, the North Shore. Like season North Shore is yeah, pretty good. It's like classic. You're from yeah. England and they want to like, these, right? This guy's from England. Like he wants something different yeah. and there's nothing mm-hmm. really like Seymour or from. There's or also something to be said for the nostalgia of like riding trails that you've been watching in videos for like 20 yeah. years. Seeing that type of, yeah, type of mountain bike history is like, I think pretty awesome. Yeah. You gotta do a day okay, there. Maybe least. I'm just. Maybe I'm just. I'm thinking a, of all the skinnies, Henry, and yeah. the skinnies. Yeah, I know. And to yeah. be fair, I, every time I ride the North Shore, I do have a really nice time. And riding Cypress or something would be amazing. But no, I've been riding. Um, I spent a bit of time in Power River recently, and it just. I didn't. I didn't. The locals of Power River want me to say this, but it was very nice. It was very. very so you nice, become a full-on island elitist. Yeah, only on the island. But yeah, <laughs> or, for how much wait, is the ferry, Henry? Oh yeah, dr- the ferry well, yeah, was thirty dollars return, I think. Yeah, I thought you were talking about like Vancouver. That was from the island, though. Yeah. So oh, okay. I don't know what it's from here, but it was right. just hopped on my bike. Anyway, that's not the point. Yeah. Either way, we'll so, keep on the main, like, you know, it's just easier on your, if on vacation, not to find little things, and then maybe they'll run into some locals that show them some other bits yeah, and pieces, totally. but th- 10 days, they'll have a good time. Yeah. yeah. I think as well, I think it's really great to, um, like you said, to the, the main spots are the main spots for a reason. They yeah. are very, very good. Some and especially stuff. someone mm-hmm. like Pemberton is just amazing, right? Yeah. yeah. You could also like with 10 days, you could make your way into the interior if you wanted to go like. Castle Garden Nelson or Revelstoke or something. Sure, that is an interesting piece. I well, I guess caveat here. I'm not all that familiar with BC, and so don't take my words really to mean much of anything. Um, But BC is pretty big, and so focusing only on the Sea Sky Corridor seems like it's ignoring Kamloops and all these other really incredible places there. And they didn't specify what part of BC they're going to. I imagine flying into Vancouver is probably the best option. Um, it's just and so much really good there, riding around yeah. there. I'm just also just yeah. picturing because it's a European holiday that it'll be like the heat of summer because that's kind of when the Europeans mm-hmm. go to Moab. Right. They go there in July and then like, well, how come Moab's so hot? <laughs> so Kamloops yeah. in July tends to be really hot too. So yeah, that keep makes them, sense. Keep them on the coast. Yeah. Um, anyway, let's go into Music Corner to maybe whittle down the hours as you are getting on a plane to come to uh, Vancouver. Kaz, what is your Music Corner? And is it excellent? I think it is excellent. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to try to find this on YouTube because that's what we're doing now. It might be hard to find, but I'll, I'll search for it. But anyways, my song is from, it's Youth Brigade and it's from their complete first demo that came out in 1981 and it's called Full Speed Ahead and it's a great song and I like it. And the the album itself, I think there's eight tracks and if you listen to the whole thing, it would take you maybe seven minutes. It's a very oh, nice. condensed album. So I'll try to find <laughs> some old nice. Youth Brigade to put in here. Um, and Dario, what hard, like hardcore Mongolian throat singing crossover have you got for us this week? And does <laughs> nothing, it have a there's no Tuvan throat singing. There's nothing too weird. Uh, it's just a good old one minute, 12 second song where a guy oh, yelled fantastic. a lot called yeah. Counting Worms by Knocked Loose. The, uh, that is exactly what I was hoping for. <laughs> Great stuff. Oh, Alicia. update. I got a worm bin very recently and set it up the other day and the worms seem to be thriving and happy so far. Yeah, oh, it's so cool. News. I'm much more excited about this than I'm letting on right now. But it's kind of a big deal in my life. Him. This is a good place Come visit my worm bin sometime. <laughs> yeah, come hang out with them. <laughs> do you guys ever think about the worms when you're like skidding down trails? Ooh. Like they watch worry. you, like they poke their heads so, up and then they duck down. I just worry Every that I'm Every summer the, like, the slugs come out and that really yeah. gets to me. I love yeah. the slugs. Yeah. I, don't, I like them. I don't ever I run like them, them, but I don't like the possibility of hitting them. And no, it know. seems hard to not hit them because they're everywhere. At a certain point, is inevitable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what's your music? Alicia, what would your music call? Oh, 
Um, I have a YouTube performance. It is Alexander Wolf playing Swallow the Dice, parentheses, live from Dean Street Studios. And I just think it's a nice performance. Oh, nice. I'm going to go with a nice performance as well. I'm going for The Adults Are Talking by The Strokes. And dare I say, this is the most coherent I've ever heard The Strokes. They almost stick to the script. <laughs> he remembers the words. <laughs> Yeah. It's really quite. He remembers all of the words. Very impressive. Oh, pretty good. All of there's that. no um, like, yeah. like lyrical mumbling at some point. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> honestly, I genuinely think it's as it was recorded. And it's like pretty close. Oh, uh, like, forgot to. Yeah, yeah. one one beer impressive. fewer than usual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much for listening, and don't forget to tune in for, on Monday where we're going to do that kind of double dose of podcasts the next couple of weeks. Thanks, guys, and we'll catch you next time.